Welcome to the Build Podcast, a ministry of the next-gen team of First Baptist Owasso. We believe the next generation, the children being raised right now, will change the world. They matter to God, to you, and to us. In this episode of Build, Paula Bonebreak talks about navigating teenage life stressors. Every day, you can make a difference in the life of a child. You are not alone. This is Build. So, I'm Paula Bonebreak. I have a practice here in Owasso and have worked with children, adolescents, families, couples. It's just fun. I enjoy working with all kinds of people. But one of the things that um, I wanted to talk with you guys about is just basically how to tell the difference between when is it just normal teenage angst and when do I need to go and get some outside resources for my teen or my child, depending upon, you know, their age. But um, so some of the stuff that is on here, like I got some of the symptoms for you. So what we're looking for is not just one or two symptoms, but you're probably going to need more than just one or two symptoms. Like maybe I'm irritable and annoyed only one week a month. So if that's the case, <laughs> if that's the case, then I'm probably not really dealing with a lot of depression. I'm dealing with PMS. But if I'm irritable and annoyed, which is the number one thing that adolescents will tell you that they feel, they just feel angry a lot. And I don't know why I feel angry. I'm just always angry and I'm discontent. I can't figure out what makes me happy. I can't stay invested in anything for very long because I become bored with it and I don't want it anymore. And it's not like an ADHD kind of bored where, like, I lose interest quickly. It's literally nothing fills me up and makes me content. And so they'll oftentimes say it's boredom because they don't understand how to communicate that part of it. But that is part of what depression is. I don't feel excited about pretty much anything and so part of that is what you're looking for because you have to start exploring it if you're noticing that they're isolating and they're starting to withdraw from kind of hanging out with their friends as much or they're just coming home and like taking naps as soon as they get home from school because you should be able to at 15 or 16 have plenty of energy you should not need to take a nap every day so if you need to take a nap you got something going on, right? And so one of the things that happens is like extreme fatigue. They'll talk about like having headaches. They'll talk about stomach aches. Sometimes they'll say they have joint pain, muscle aches. Those are all signs of depression, actually. And so those are things that you want to look at. Dude, you got some. Here's this little click, 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 click. <laughs> anyway, so people could be irritable and super sensitive to sound. <laughs> I'm just joking. But they actually, they could be. But anyway, so they might have trouble thinking or concentrating. So one of the things that you look at is like, okay, not again, not the, necessarily the ADHD kind of lack of focus, but like was I able to focus before, but now my grades are starting to drop because I literally cannot understand what I just read in a paragraph like my brain feels like it's slow and so I've had people say that to me they'll go I don't know I feel like I got stupid all of a sudden because their brain thinks slower because their neurotransmitters are not working the way they're supposed to and your energy and your brain is not where it's supposed to be because we have a lot of electrical activity in our brain 
and all that slows down and becomes fatigued whenever we are depressed. And so they'll get overwhelmed easily. They don't know how to problem solve. But I used to be able to problem solve. So, like, if we're talking about somebody who's never been able to problem solve and always cried whenever they got overwhelmed, well, we may not be looking at depression. We might be looking at, like, a learning disability or something different. But if I used to be able to handle life, but now I can't handle life and little things overwhelm me and I can't even decide where I want to go eat so I just don't go anywhere, Half the time, maybe I don't even finish the things that I need to get finished. And I used to be a very responsible person. That's, a dis- that's something that's very different. That's the kind of stuff that you look at. And you put all those facts together, and then you like go, okay, let's go talk to somebody and see what we can do to fix some of these things. Because sometimes it can be situational, like maybe I'm being bullied at school, or I'm just in over my head. I took way too many advanced classes. I am feeling like a failure because I'm not able to get stuff done that I want to get done, you know, and I don't have time for any of my friends because I'm in band and we practice like 150 hours a day. And so there's all these things that can like get really overwhelming to kids. And so then we go, okay, well, if we remove some of that stress, do things start to get better? Okay. And that's kind of like when you intervene at the earliest level and you can see some things change. But if it keeps staying there and we stay under an intense amount of stress in our brain eventually that changes our brain chemistry so there's several things that can cause like a medical condition of depression and one of them being under frequent constant stress is one of the things that can actually cause depression for a prolonged period of time that'll change our brain chemistry but um, also genetics if it's hereditary so if if we have a grandparent, parent, aunts, uncles, somebody else who's also dealt with that. And so or if we have someone in the family that's bipolar, which means, you know, that they have both the highs and the lows, it's not uncommon for there to be a unipolar depression come out of that too. And so anxiety and depression are the same um, neurotransmitter base, but they manifest different symptoms. And so that's why a lot of times you'll hear somebody say that they're taking an anti-anxiety medication and they'll say, I'm taking Zoloft, it's for my anxiety. And this guy over here goes, well, I'm taking Zoloft, that's for my depression. Because it's the same medication works for both things. Because it's the same neurotransmitter base. I just made that up. I don't know that there's a lot of people running around saying that about Zoloft. But if they did, now you know why. (laughs) Because it'll take care of both. But um, whenever you're looking at what's going on with your kid, if they were normally always a energetic, rambunctious, fun-loving teen who now is tired all the time, you know, what if they had mono? Like, so I don't want everybody to just immediately jump on and go, I bet they have depression. Well, no, that's why you need to go to the doctor. <laughs> so I always encourage people who say, I've never had any problems in this area before, and it started now. Okay, well, let's just make sure we get a good physical. So there's some things that need to be ruled out, things like mono, thyroid problems, um, even diabetes can cause mood swings and severe anxiety. Um, You can have like just significant hormone changes can do that. But then there's also um, like insomnia, some of the other things that come with it can happen from just having too much cortisol and stress and all that stuff. So that's why you want to go at least get all that checked out through a pediatrician or family practice physician or something like that. And then also do some of the counseling with them if that's something that needs to happen. Because if you go in and you find out that they're, they have no vitamin D, you know, like they're way low on their vitamin D or they have a thyroid problem or something, that's your fix. <laughs> but if they've changed the way they believe or think or feel about themselves through this process, that might be something you want to go and get them some help with. Because sometimes when I start to feel depressed, I change the way I think about myself. 
I'll run myself down. I might even have suicidal thinking. And so if that's happening, that's something that you guys always want to intervene on. So if someone says that they want to die or they wish they were dead, those are irrational thoughts. So back in the day, you know, kids could say things like that and people would just be like, oh, you're not going to do that. But actually they do now. Quite kind of a lot. So what you want to do is you want to go, wait, why did you say that? Help me understand what's going on behind that. So if they say, well, I've never thought of anything like that before. I just was angry. Okay, mental note there. When I get mad, do I say I want to be dead? I don't. Do you? Probably not. So mental note, that is a red flag for me. That doesn't mean I'm going to rush you somewhere. I'm going to watch and I'm going to see if there are anything else that goes in line with that. So could I have impulsively said that and not been suicidal and never ever say it again? Yeah, but I'm going to watch and make sure that that's really where you are. So do any of you guys work with the youth? So <laughs> quite a bit, kind of a lot of you. So what do you do if somebody in your youth group says something like that? What do you guys typically do? Yeah. Definitely bring the youth pastor in on it. Anything else? Yeah. And that's exactly right. So we try to get some people involved who can be with them because I can't stay with you 24-7, and I also don't want to carry that. So a lot of kids will try to ask you to keep a secret for them, and I know that you guys have already probably been trained that you're like, well, I, I don't know that I until you tell me what it is, I can't promise a secret. If you tell me you're planning a surprise birthday party for your friend, I can keep that a secret. But if you're telling me that you're wanting to harm yourself, I can't keep that a secret. That's not allowable, you know. And so those are the kinds of things. But, like, if they're asking you to do that, obviously, no, I'm going to tell your parents and get you some help, you know. And so one of the questions that someone had in an earlier class was, well, what do you do if you believe that the home is a toxic environment and that if I share this information, it will cause some pretty significant consequences for that person? And that's whenever you go and get, you would probably have to make a report to DHS because if I really believe that it's not even safe to go to your parents to tell them that you are suicidal, then you probably are going to need some outside help, you know. And they will, based upon those statements, they bump up how fast they come out to see the kid and to do a report with the kid and to see what resources need to happen for that child. And so I don't know if you guys have ever had to do that, but if you ever do, you know, be sure that you get their name, their number, and their reference number and all that kind of stuff if you ever have to make a report just so that you have all that information because you do work with the youth, and we are required by law to share things that we believe that they would be in danger or abuse or things like that. Um, so one of the things, too, is whenever you have um, anxiety, they have insomnia, too. So some of these symptoms look a little bit alike. So with anxiety, I might have insomnia because I lay and I worry all like I'm when I'm distracted, I'm fine. But then I lay there and I worry, worry about what I said to people. I worry about what I did that day. I worry about was there something I forgot to do today? Did I get everything done like I was supposed to? I go over all kinds of things, just silly things in the head, and they can't stop thinking. Well, whenever I'm doing that, I'm also producing adrenaline, and adrenaline is a stimulant, so it's going to keep me from being able to fall asleep. Or if I do fall asleep, I'm not going to be able to stay asleep very easily because I have too much adrenaline in my body. 
And so it'd be like taking some sort of big amount of caffeine and then trying to sleep. For most people, that's not going to be beneficial. You know, they're going to have a hard time with that. Other people like ADHD, sometimes they're opposite bodies, and so they actually can fall asleep whenever they take caffeine. But for just think of it like that adrenaline is something that is actually stimulating to your body, so it doesn't make me want to fall asleep. So if you're seeing that kind of insomnia, just a few questions from you as parents to be able to say, well, do you worry at night, or does your brain just get really busy and think about a lot of stuff when you lay down to go to sleep? Or is, it, is your brain fairly quiet, but I still can't fall asleep? And that's how you know the difference, because with an anxiety person, it's always busy. With a depression person, they're usually like, no, I'm not really thinking about anything. I just start getting frustrated because I can't fall asleep. You know, or they'll fall asleep, but they can't stay asleep. And so they'll have frequent wake-ups throughout the night, and it's not because they got to get up and use the restroom or anything like that. They just can't stay asleep. And so sometimes um, without that having enough of the serotonin, it will cause you to have frequent wake-ups during the night whenever you're having the depression. Um, so one of the things, too, is they'll do like a – the hormones are really a huge precursor in changing your body, but they also change your mental health. So when someone has – like, you know, you can be an adult and come in, and as you're going through a hormone change – whether that's postpartum, like you hear about postpartum depression, and that is triggered mostly by the hormone change that happens during the pregnancy. Well, for men, sometimes if they have low testosterone, it's the same thing. They'll start feeling foggy-brained. They'll start feeling sluggish and fatigued, and they can't concentrate. And that oftentimes is misdiagnosed, and they'll be like, oh, I don't know. I guess I have depression. Well, when you go to the doctor and you get your blood work, you're like, oh, non-depression I need to get this fixed up and then whenever they do then they feel back to normal again but sometimes people go and they have a full workup and they come back and they're like everything was in the normal range okay well then we really are dealing with this and here's our strategies and here's what we're going to do so your treatment plan and your strategy is always based upon whatever it is that that person is experiencing so if I'm experiencing lots and lots of fatigue we're going to start looking at some things that will help with energy and that side effect of depression. Does that make sense? Or if I'm thinking suicidally, I'm going to put strategies in that will reduce my risk of suicide, that will reduce my thought process in there and try to match up some different strategies for that. And so hereditary, and then you got to look at hormones, and then you also got to look at situations. So what if I'm being really bullied at school or I'm being sexually harassed? Because, you know, on Snapchat, people just, you know, send pictures of their private parts to each other so if I'm being sexually harassed I don't know how to handle it I don't know what to say I don't know what to do and so in a situation like that I might start isolating withdrawing because especially if you have like a real people pleaser type of personality and they don't like conflict and they don't want to have conflict with these people so when I get harassed I don't know what to do about it and that's whenever having you know your kids' personalities, so you're, you know which ones are going to be the ones that are the most likely to not handle conflict with a peer group as well, you know, and then you might have one who you're like, oh, no, they're like head headstrong, and like even if their peers said something, they'd be like, do your own thing, I'm going to go do my own thing, and that's fine too, but we usually know our kids well enough to know when something is wrong, and whenever it stays long-term, that's whenever we go, there's something really wrong if it's not going away. 
Because anybody can get worked up and worried and anxious about a test, about a relationship, about a situation, and I can't stop thinking about it. So I might have a couple of nights I don't sleep well. But then it goes away and it levels out. I mean, that's just life. But whenever it doesn't level out, whenever it doesn't go away, that's whenever I need to go and get some intervention and get some support from some strategies and things we can get, whether it's through the doctor or go to a therapist, whatever it is that would be the most helpful for you. So um, whenever you have some people had asked earlier, too, about eating disorders and self-harm and mutilation and self-mutilation and things like that. And that's actually all of those are common with both depression and anxiety. So um, eating disorders are really highly correlated with sexual abuse, but they're also highly correlated with a perfectionist personality. And so then they get to where they want to control everything, even what they put in their body, and then they want to really focus on that. And so if I have a lot of anxiety, and sometimes OCD people, obsessive compulsive disorder, which is a part of anxiety, they will develop an eating disorder because it's a way for me to manage my anxiety thoughts. If they're all about food in my body, I'm comfortable with those being the thoughts that I think. Even though I don't want them, it's better than maybe something else that's scarier to me. And so that's part of where some of that comes in. But just being able to go back and, and kind of figure some of those things out. But um, whenever you're also dealing with depression, some of the times that like they may cut on themselves as a way to like be able to deal with the intense emotional pain. And so what they do is they convert it over to a physical pain because I can control and manage a physical pain, but I feel completely out of control with this emotional pain. And so sometimes people really like the attention that, that they feel like that, that their pain gets from an external source. So it's not like, oh, look at me, I want attention, I'm going to be like the class clown. I don't mean like that. It's more of like, I need you to see how bad I hurt. And so if you can see it, maybe someone's going to intervene and help me. And so then you've got your other ones who will do everything within their power to hide, that that's how they manage their pain. And they would never want anyone to know, and they're highly embarrassed when somebody accidentally finds it because it's usually through an accident where somebody comes in and they're helping or whatever, and they're like, why do you have cuts all up and down on your thigh? What's going on here? You know, and it's like, oh, or they'll cut, like, way up in here so that they're hoping that, like, their shirts will cover it, you know. But whenever I'm cutting where it's real obvious, I do want someone to reach out to me. I do want someone to see my pain. Because then hopefully somebody will help me get to a place of safety within myself because I can't find it. And so it's okay to ask somebody about that. Like if you see what appears to be like little cuts on them, like, hey, what, what happened there? Especially if they're very defined. Because, you know, if I tell you that my kitten did that, <laughs> I have a cat, it should look crazy. You know, <laughs> like cats will grab you and do their thing. But if it looks like it's very symmetrical, you, that, no, cats don't do that. They're not really careful how they scratch you. They scratch and go. So that's one of the things, too, to be, especially for the youth workers, like whenever you're around that, to be able to just ask them, hey, tell me a little bit about that. How would you, how'd you come with this? And then get them with somebody, you know, of course, go tell the youth leader. <laughs> Don't you just love that that's always your out? You're like, then you just go tell the youth leader. <laughs> that's his problem. I did my job. I told you. <laughs> need you help out here. Yeah. It's very nice to have some of that support. But that's one of the things, too, that helps you to be able to go, wait. Also, you have each other even when it's your own kid. I mean, how many times have you called somebody and been like, 
So my kid said this to me tonight. Blew my mind. I don't even know how I'm supposed to respond to that. You know, like if you're telling your best friend or whatever. And you get support through that. But it's the same thing. Sometimes you might not even notice how long you've been arguing with your kid. Like for months we've been arguing. And then you because you get so used to it because you're living with it. And then you go, wait, I don't think that we've had a pleasant conversation in months. And when that occurs, that's not normal because that's not their typical interaction with you. That's when I would go, oh, there's something that we need to intervene on here. Why? Why are we so much at odds? What's happening here? You know, and of course they're going to think it's your fault. But that's where you have to let go in and go, we need to go. Maybe since we can't communicate, let's go together. Let's go see somebody together and see what's going on. You know, and usually through that, you'll kind of, whenever they're filling out their questionnaires and there's assessments and stuff like that, they'll figure out, like, what's actually happening on some of those. So on the anxiety side, sometimes you'll see that they'll start avoiding, because whenever you have a panic attack, so panic attacks are common with anxiety, but you can also have anxiety and never, ever have a panic attack. So they don't always go together, but a panic disorder is always part of anxiety, if that makes sense. So like that's the big category is anxiety, and then you can have a panic disorder underneath that. So one of the things that happens with panic attacks is they'll start feeling dizzy, hot, maybe nauseous, tingly all over. They'll sometimes describe that they feel like their legs won't work. They don't feel like that they can hear very well. Like sometimes the sound just gets overwhelming to them, and they'll just really shut down, and then they feel like they've got to hurry and get out of the room. They need to get out of wherever they are and get to a place where they feel like they can get things under control. But their heart will race, and a lot of times they'll tell you, like, I think something's wrong, like I might be having a heart attack or something bad is going to happen. And so for those who can't breathe, one of the things that helps is if you're ever, if you ever have a kid that's having that, for one, have them follow you while you're breathing and taking really good deep breaths and expanding your stomach and show them how to follow you because they're too panicked because they're hyperventilating a lot of times. So when you say take a deep breath and then they go, (sighs) they really do think that was a deep breath. They have no idea that it's a slow, deep breath. And then all you have to do is just match my breathing. And you'll have to say that over and over. Match my breathing because they think they are and they're not. And you're watching them pant. (laughs) And you're like, you're not matching my breathing. So once they get calmed down, because what you're actually doing is turning on the parasympathetic nervous system and it, actually starts putting the calming stuff in so my heart rate comes down my blood pressure starts to come down and when that occurs I actually have more energy in my frontal lobe and I can now actually kind of start to think a little straighter that doesn't mean that I'm not still anxious because clearly I'm going to still be anxious because I just had a panic attack but at least I don't feel like I'm in the peak of it I'm bringing it down so part of a panic attack is a lot of adrenaline and when you get a big adrenaline dump your whole body is going to twitch and shake unless you do something physical. So, like, if you got all that adrenaline and you helped lift a Volkswagen off a family that just had a wreck, well, I used all my adrenaline, all of it's gone. I didn't go through the twitching and shaking phase. But how many times have you ever, like, had a huge adrenaline dump and it was like a near miss, crisis averted, almost had a car wreck but didn't, and now my armpits are tingly and I'm feeling, like, a little shaky, and that's all adrenaline. And your adrenaline is supposed to match your situation. So if I need enough adrenaline to lift a Volkswagen off a family, I'm getting a lot of adrenaline. If I just need a little bit of adrenaline because something startled me and a door slammed, and then I look and I see that it was just a door that slammed, no big deal, my adrenaline comes right back down. 
But what happens with a panic disorder is I give you the amount of adrenaline to lift a Volkswagen off a family when the door slams. So now I have so much in my body that doesn't match the situation around me. I freak out internally. And then I don't know what's going on because my thoughts are racing. My heart is racing. All these things are happening. And then usually they can, for whatever reason, we produce extra gastric juices and wind up with diarrhea. So there's all these things that start happening, and nobody likes that consequence. But then they have that, too, to worry about, you know, because, like, they'll tell you, I've got the anxiety farts. My kids, like, start learning whenever we're working through, like, where are you in your system? And we're pulling it down to triggers, learning how to work on them. They're like, but I didn't have the diarrhea. I just had the anxiety farts. I'm like, good. What's progress? <laughs> we got it. We got to handle quicker. You know, you didn't need as much gastric juices. And so that's part of being able to help them understand it because if they're complaining to you often about having diarrhea because believe it or not irritable bowel syndrome is often related to anxiety and so you'll hear people say well I have IBS well one of the ways that they treat it a lot of times is through an anti-anxiety medication and it will help because our brain gut connection because you have neurotransmitter chemistry that goes all the way down your spinal cord and goes into your gut, believe it or not. That's one of the things that actually helps fix some of that. And so you'll see somebody say, well, I'm on, on Paxil or whatever for um, my IBS. And they don't even know they have anxiety. <laughs> it makes me laugh. I'm like, well, you know, <laughs> those two are connected. They're like, what? My doctor just put me on this that it helped with IBS. Well, it did, didn't it? Yeah, it did. But that's what it was related to. Otherwise, it wouldn't have helped it. Because that's an anxiety thing, because that has nothing to do with your intestines. It has everything to do with your fight or flight stuff. And so being able to help them get that under control can save them a lot of pain, because it really interferes with their learning. It interferes with their social activities. It interferes with them sleeping, because I want to go do fun stuff, but I'm too worried that I won't feel good when I get there, because they start having a stomach ache before they even go, because they're already worried. And so it stresses them out. And then a lot of times they'll plan something and then break that plan at the last minute. And they really do feel sick, and they'll tell you they feel sick. And it's something you know they wanted to go to. Or they'll call you and they're sick because there was an assembly at school. And they're like, I don't feel good. What happened? Well, I don't know. I was at the assembly and I just started feeling yucky. Do they feel yucky every time there's an assembly or just this one time? You could have a virus. You know what I mean? But if it starts falling in line with some of that, then you might go, ah, I think maybe you've got some anxiety. And they're the ones that worry about all kinds of stuff, too. Usually you'll see some of their worry coming out in their language, you know, and they'll tell you that they're worried about stuff that you would think that seems normal to be worried about that. But maybe they're worried about it all the way up to a 10. And maybe their worry really should only be at like a 2 or a 3 to match that situation and you're like oh so you think about that a lot do you because most kids are worried about whether or not they're going to make friends well what if i'm consumed by it you know that then it's out of proportion for what the situation should be like there's no reason to be completely consumed by that fear of rejection or whatever that is also the other thing that's a precursor to either depression or anxiety is um, childhood trauma so if i've had a parent die if I've been in a horrible car wreck, you know, if my house caught on fire, my dog died and I lost everything that I owned, you know, we move and I can't get back into a youth group or I can't find friends and I can't feel connected. So sometimes you can trace it back to something like that and that can be part of what 
goes into that change in the brain that changes the way they think and feel. But their other part of that, too, is then you have to look at the whole entire total picture because there's lots of people who move and who do all of those things, and they come through it just fine without any negative interaction. So obviously just because they move doesn't mean that they're going to have anxiety or depression. So ADHD is another thing that um, a lot of times people wonder if it's a mental illness, but it's not. It is a neurological difference, and so it's the way the brain is formed. And people with ADHD are lacking, like, chemistry as well. And so they usually are dopamine-seeking and norepinephrine-seeking. And so dopamine is kind of that pleasure part. So a lot of times people think because their kid can sit for three hours and play video games, they must not have ADHD because they can focus on that. But that has nothing to do with trying to focus on something that doesn't give you dopamine. My history book doesn't give me any dopamine, but my video games do because they create pleasure in my brain. They create an immediate reward. And so then I start to produce dopamine. And so that is not the evidence of whether or not a child has ADHD is by how long they can sit and do a fun activity because fun activities, again, give them dopamine. So even if my favorite thing is to do Legos and I can sit and do Legos for hours, that doesn't mean I'm not ADHD because I'm getting pleasure out of that. So those just aren't like, those aren't typically what you would look at as part of that. It's their ability to focus, their ability to problem solve, their emotional and social development, which is usually two to three years below their chronological age. And so it's things like that when you put the total picture together and you're looking at it. And so a lot of people who have ADHD also have um, learning disabilities. And so probably about 60% of them do. And they're usually things like in the dyslexia family, those types of things. And so those are some of the things that you have to look at. What time are we supposed to be done? Okay, are we supposed to be done right now? That, okay. Just wanted to make sure because I thought, oh my gosh, sorry. <laughs> so on some of the other stuff that you deal with with ADHD is that impulsivity. And part of that is because they don't, that frontal lobe of the brain is underdeveloped. And they also don't know how to sequence very well and organize their thoughts because that comes later. That's part of that executive functioning. And so you'll find if you have a child like that that you're having to frequently help them to organize and plan or you're going to Hobby Lobby right before it closes for their big project that they didn't tell you about that's due in the morning. Or you're trying to get everything you need from Walmart at midnight. So it's one of those things where sometimes these kids don't know how to do all of that. And then we get frustrated with them, but it's also part of their general makeup of their brain that they have a hard time with that. But it does get better. Like they grow into better coping skills. They do not grow out of ADHD. If anyone tells you that they're no longer ADHD, but they were as a kid, either you never were or you've just grown into the ability to manage what you've been given. Because we have way too many neural images from MRIs that show you what an ADHD brain looks like versus a brain without. It doesn't go away. You don't just like grow into a different brain. But what winds up happening is I start developing a lot more coping skills and strategies and abilities. And once I'm able to do that, I might, not, I might not notice it as much. You know, I might be able to accomplish a lot more and do a lot better with it. And then other people, they say, nope, I'm still taking my Adderall or I would never know where my wallet is. Can't find my keys half the time either. 
And if as long as I take my medicine, I make it through the day and I can keep everything and come home with the same things I left with. It's like, okay, I get it. You know, so sometimes people don't need it after they get out of school and some people are able to just use strategies and they don't take medicine ever. So it just depends upon the severity and how it impacts that person. So just because they have that diagnosis doesn't mean they're automatically on medicine, but they have a very high correlation with anxiety or depression because it also has to do with the same areas of the brain that produces neurotransmitters. So a lot of people with ADHD either develop anxiety or depression in their lifetime. And so that's another thing whenever we're doing like an assessment, we're looking at like if you come in and you're telling me you've got depression, never had it before in your life, and then we're looking back and it's like, oh, yeah, I was ADHD for years. You know, my whole life I've had ADHD. Oh, okay, okay. Well, this is kind of a normal progression. We still might want to make sure that all of your blood work is okay, but this is a very normal progression of ADHD you know, and, and dealing with some of that as well. Do you guys have any questions, thoughts? I mean, there's, you know, five of you. You should, should just be busting at the seams with some <laughs> additional questions. Lots of kids who have anxiety are just really type A and smart kids and they sometimes you know you can just help them calm down and by just kind of talking it through and they actually do well with lots of information because an anxious person doesn't really like surprises <laughs> so they really like the more information the calmer they are what time are we leaving tomorrow they're the ones that like the schedules they like you know they feel a lot calmer whenever they know stuff that's going on, and how to plan. They like to plan a lot of times. Those are the people who are just naturally wired that way. Does that make sense? And so then you might have somebody who has anxiety who's not a perfectionist or a planner or any of that, and that's more of like, hmm, I wonder how this is impacting you because nothing really helps that person with just behavioral strategies sometimes. But you might find that, like, your anxious kid, once we start doing some of these other things, they get enough sleep, we have your plan, we've got you structured, you've already checked your backpack, you've got your clothes laid out, like that they seem to be less anxious. Does that make sense? And they... And they do because those type A people take way too much on. So they want to be in every AP class and they want to do this and they want to do that and they're in extracurricular activities. So they're doing everything and they do feel the weight of that stress. And they think everybody else is able to do it. So they should be able to do it. But they actually can, being under stress for an extended amount of time can actually change our brain chemistry. And then I can start having a clinical anxiety I can start having clinical depression that doesn't get fixed through cognitive behavioral therapy. Does that make sense? Because they don't know how to manage the stress that they're given because there's so much intensity behind it. So sometimes them learning how to just manage some of that stress and having like a relaxation, there's like some really good yoga nidra, eye rest, those kinds of things where you can do like a, a relaxation meditation type thing before they lay down to go to bed or when they're in high stress. And you can just literally lay there and just relax your body and just feel all that coming down. And they can feel that relaxation taking over. 
But some of these kids are like, I got so much stuff to do, I can't even take 10 minutes to relax. You know what I mean? Which would actually make their brain function better because when I'm in a relaxed place, I actually retain the information and I stay in the upper part of my brain here where I learn. But when I get really anxious, I drop in my brain stem where there's no new learning to occur. And so, yeah, it's even harder for me to, to study when I'm anxious because I can't remember what I just studied and then I freak out over that. I don't know what I just read. <laughs> Never going to do well on this test. But once they calm down, like they're going to retain the information. It's there because they were in class. They've done their homework. You know what I mean? That kind of stuff. A lot of it's there, but that anxiety can kind of become like a, an intense motivator for them. And then they can start relying on that and believing that that's what helps them to make good grades. I worried enough about it along with studying. But just studying without the extra worry, I don't think I could make that grade. <laughs> you know what I mean? They start getting into that and they don't realize, like, you could actually do this better without the worry. It's yoga nidra, and it's N-I-D-R-A, or I rest, and it's an I, like iPhone, but like I rest, and both of those are basically just relaxation. There's some really weird ones out there, and then there's some good ones. So you have to like kind of go through them and see, because sometimes, you know, you see them on YouTube, and they're free, you know, and you're like, that's the most annoying voice ever, and is that Fran Drescher, you know, and you like go on to the next one. So you like have to find one that you really like, and then there was this one guy who was working with a girl and it sounded good and I'm like hey will you like his voice like we can maybe you could use this one and then he goes oh and we laughed so hard I was like not this one he's a didgeridoo I don't understand why he turned into a didgeridoo like we don't want this one so we moved along but so you might want to preview them <laughs> before you have her do them but the veteran yoga project they don't do anything weird on theirs <laughs> because I've worked with veterans for years and they just do your basic, and you know, when I tell them, I go, when they talk about you finding your third eye, just ignore that. We all don't have one. Um, just pretend that they didn't say that. Just keep going, you know, because they're just talking about centering your energy into the middle of your forehead is what they're really trying to tell you, but it sounds weird. But it's, you can just kind of go through them. But I saw um, there were some Christian meditation ones the other day whenever I was looking on YouTube, and I thought, oh, I haven't had time to really look, them, look through them. But I thought those might be good, too, that you could use for relaxation because they are helpful. Any other thoughts, questions? That's really annoying. Yeah, because, you know, in sixth grade, they're all trying to be exactly alike. And the more alike we are, the more accepted we are. So don't deviate from the norm. Don't be unique. Unique is bad. You have to be exactly alike in whatever your determination of alike is. And then in seventh grade, they kind of start pushing the envelope and figuring things out a little bit, feeling a little more grown up. That's when sometimes the, the sexting will start, sometimes in that grade. And then they're trying to see how far of a boundary they can push. And then by eighth grade, they're usually, you know, you've kind of got like this plethora of groups. And you've got like your really emotional group, you know, kind of the ones that they term like the emos. So, you know, you've got that group because then it becomes the more unique you are, the more attention you get. 
So I want to shock people and I want to show people how unique I am through the way I dress and through the way that I act and by showing people that I'm an individual. But then they also might sometimes claim a sexuality in the eighth grade. So sometimes they'll claim that they're, you know, transgender, gay, bisexual, whatever that is. And they're, they may not be that, but that's just what they do at that time. Cause it is kind of like, I want to shock. I enjoy that shock feeling. So then I claim one of these. And then maybe two years later, I decide I'm not that I'm this, whatever this is. And then they're like, wait, didn't you just say like in the eighth grade that you were gay? I don't think so, dude. So it's hard for them to get out of the whatever label they chose to put on themselves. And they're like, I remember when you were the emo and you used to wear that bracelet with spikes on it, like a dog collar to school. And you said you were a furry. And you said, you know what I mean? So then you start getting all of these things that they went extreme on. And then they don't know how to get out of it. They don't know how to get that grace from that. And sometimes that even goes into that feeling of social isolation and that feeling of just disconnect and I don't know how to connect with my crowd. One of the good things about Owasso, though, is every year you may not ever see anybody that you know. Because, <laughs> like, all their classes are just so up in the air. It's common for them to feel like, I didn't know anybody in any of my classes. Well, good. Because if you're really wanting to change your identity... <laughs> And try to get your maturity is caught up a little bit. That's good for you. Like you're going to have some, some, you know, peace this year because nobody knows what you've claimed in the past. They don't know you. And so that sometimes is a real blessing, you know, that they don't even know is there. And so usually I will point that out with the kids that I'm working with. And I'll be like, because they just think that everybody has this preconceived idea. And I'm like, how many people in that class did you know? None. Most of the day they don't know anybody. And it's like, hmm. Looks like you get to be whatever you want to be this year. What do you want to be? You know, because now that you're in the 10th grade and you think what you said in the 8th grade was silly whenever you used to wear, you know, tiger ears to school, I now think that's silly. <laughs> and I don't want to be seen that way. Great. You aren't. Let's change it, you know. And so I think sometimes they forget that they actually can mature into whatever their identity is going to be now. You know, because that's a lot of pressure to try to figure out your sexuality by eighth grade. You know, it's very difficult for them to do. Any other thoughts? Nope. Well, thank you guys for coming. It was great. I'm glad you guys came through the whole seminar. Thanks for listening to Build. Our desire is to walk with you. We hope the episode helps you better understand your kids and engage with them more intentionally. The Build conversation never ends. Visit fbcawaso.org to stay connected and discover an incredible community of people who are on this journey together. We look forward to building an incredible story with you.